Glimpsed through the glass double doors at the end of a long prison hallway, he is not recognizable as the impassive hawk-faced man who was marched incessantly across television screens around the world less than two years ago. He seems smaller, diminished, just an elderly man in glasses talking deferentially to a prison official and looking a little anxious as he waits for the locked doors ahead of him to click open. The creases in his tan short-sleeved shirt and trousers are knife-sharp despite the humidity of this late summer morning. His hair is shorter, but it suits his slimmer frame. His black leather sneakers are gleaming. He still has a quiet magnetism that draws the eye. For more than two hours, he answers questions, sometimes with a direct gaze and sometimes with eyes that shift to the empty patio outside the window beside him. He is soft-spoken and intense, with occasional flashes of wit. He loses his composure just once when he talks about his wife. Throughout, he seems unfailingly candid, earnest, and trustworthy. But then, he always does, even when he is lying. That is his talent and his curse. That is what enabled him to pull off the largest Ponzi scheme on record. That is what will enable him to spin the facts and obscure the truth about his crime for as long as he lives. Bernard L. Madoff, inmate number 617-27054, is the best-known prisoner currently held at the sprawling Federal Correctional Complex on the outskirts of Butner, North Carolina. That was an excerpt from The Wizard of Lies by Diana Henriquez, the book we're discussing today. I wanted to start with Madoff because his name is synonymous with fraud. It's the fraud most people think of when they think financial crime. And I wanted to read this book because the author is the first person Madoff granted an interview to after his arrest. She had unprecedented access and she covered the entire story in amazing detail. So I'm just going to read you a couple more excerpts from the prologue to kind of set the stage and give you a little perspective on Madoff's fraud. At the end, his defrauded clients included giant institutional investors around the world, from Banco Santander in Spain to the government of Abu Dhabi, from hedge funds in the Cayman Islands to private banks in Switzerland, and the scale of his theft was unprecedented. On the day of his arrest, he was supposed to be managing roughly $64.8 billion of other people's money. If he had actually possessed that money, he would have ranked as the largest investment manager in the world, 50% bigger than the banking giant J.P. Morgan Chase twice as big as Goldman Sachs, and more than three times bigger than funds organized by the legendary global investor George Soros. But very little of that money was actually there. He was faking everything, from customer account statements to regulatory filings, on a scale that dwarfed every other Ponzi scheme in history. By 1998, I realized I was never going to get out of this, he said in one prison interview. That's when I acknowledged the fact to myself that the axe was going to fall on me eventually. So that gives you some perspective on the size of the fraud. It was about $64 billion in paper losses, which means the amount that people thought they had in their accounts, including their gains, but it was about $20 billion in actual cash losses, meaning the amount of money that people invested. And so the author does a really good job of conveying the feelings behind the disaster. She writes, The Madoff scandal struck a chord deep in that part of our imagination that responds to folktales and endows them with so much emotional power. A staple of such tales is instant transformation. In the blink of an eye, the ugly frog is a handsome prince. With one kiss, a sleeping princess is awakened, still beautiful after a century. With the sweep of a magic wand, a rolling pumpkin, and a half-dozen scurrying mice become a golden coach and six gray horses. Instant change was the core experience of Madoff's downfall. Suddenly, rich people were poor, admired people were scorned, smart people were exposed as fools, reasonable people were consumed with rage. The handsome prince became an ugly toad. This one man, Bernie Madoff, had made the life savings of tens of thousands of overly trusting people all around the world disappear in an instant. Thousands of times over, people were shattered by that stroke of midnight moment. Just an eye blink and it was all gone. Their money, their status, their easy confidence in the future, the first class travel, the secure retirement, the college fund, the peaceful sleep, the charitable pledges. 
in a single moment in their busy lives while they were sleeping or having their hair cut or driving home from a meeting or waiting in line for a movie, their wealth simply vanished. And there stood Bernie Madoff, the evil wizard who had waved his hand and in one broken heartbeat taken it all away. So those couple excerpts give you a decent idea of what we're dealing with here. The largest Ponzi scheme in the history of the world touched basically every continent and affected people from every walk of life, from billionaires all the way to blue-collar workers. The first chapter of the book is a super suspenseful recounting of Madoff's scheme collapsing. And the whole book is, is really good and it reads like a thriller. But for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to skip that part and begin in the early days of Madoff's career. So Madoff started a brokerage business in 1960 while he was still a senior at Hofstra, and the author compared this time period to the tech stock bubble of the late 90s. Basically, everything was going up and had been for a long time. Madoff went into business trading OTC, or over-the-counter stocks. These were basically everything that was too small to be traded on the big board at the stock exchange. And the early days of his career is where we start to see his true colors for the first time. He was managing money for a couple dozen people, mostly family and friends, and mostly people who didn't have a lot of money. And despite these people not having a high risk tolerance, Madoff put them into the modern equivalent of tech IPOs. He was outright breaking the suitability rule and he knew it. So this is our first glimpse at an answer to one of the big questions we're trying to answer in these conversations. How can you best guard yourself against fraud? And one of the simple answers to that question is to avoid doing business with people who do unethical things. If a man cheats on his wife or if he cheats on the golf course, what's to say he isn't going to cheat you out of your money? This of course isn't a hard and fast rule, but as we'll see time and again with Madoff, he was willing to break a lot of small rules, so it's not really surprising that he was also okay with breaking big rules. To that point, in May of 1962, the market basically crashed. When the market for new issues collapsed and the price of those stocks plummeted, his trusting customers faced substantial losses. I realized I never should have sold them those shares, he later admitted. Madoff didn't just break the cardinal rule of investor protection, the suitability rule. He lied about it, covering it up in ways that preserved his reputation and thus laid the foundation for all that came later in his life of crime. He simply erased those losses from his clients' accounts by buying the new issue shares back from them at their original offering price, hiding the fact that his customers' profits had actually been wiped out by the market's turmoil. I felt obligated to buy back my client's positions, he later explained. Doing so required him to spend all the $30,000 in capital he had built up in his first two years of business, he said. Unless he could raise fresh cash, he was essentially out of business. To recapitalize his firm, he turned to his father-in-law, Saul Alpern. Madoff said he borrowed some municipal bonds from Alpern and used them as collateral for a $30,000 loan, a large amount to me in those days. The cash infusion allowed him to resume his firm's trading activities. It was a bitter taste of failure, a humiliating experience, he said. But if Madoff felt obligated to erase the losses his recklessness had created in his client accounts, he did not feel obligated to disclose what he had done to his small collection of customers, who continued to think of him as a brilliant money manager who could safely navigate even the rocky market of 1962. My clients were unaware of my actions due to their lack of experience in the OTC market, he later acknowledged in a letter from prison. If they were aware, they certainly didn't object. So this quote from Madoff is another answer to our question about how to guard yourself against fraud. He said, my clients were unaware of my actions due to their lack of experience in the OTC market. I have a little note to myself on this page that says, if you don't know how to swim, stay away from the pool. Basically, if you don't have any knowledge in a particular area, you're way more likely to get in trouble in that area for exactly the reason Madoff says here. You don't know what you don't know. One of the biggest ways to avoid fraud is to walk away when something doesn't pass the sniff test. But if you're totally ignorant to the thing you're investing in, you won't know when something smells funny. Back to the book, and this reinforces my earlier point about avoiding business dealings with unethical people. 
Madoff insisted that this early trip across the line between right and wrong, illegally selling unsuitable stocks to his clients, and then hiding their losses with phony prices, was not a Ponzi scheme, which is a form of fraud in which the profits promised to early investors are actually paid with cash raised from later investors, not from any legitimate investment activity. Madoff said that he simply used his firm's money to erase his clients' losses and burnish his own reputation as a trading star. That reputation would help him attract and hold the wealthy and influential investors who became the first to testify to his genius. Madoff initially suggested that he encouraged his father-in-law to think that repurchasing the shares was a legitimate business practice permitted by the original underwriting agreements. But in a subsequent letter from prison, he said that Alpern was aware of how this happened and understood why I felt obligated to do what I did. I was able to repay the loan within a year, which made both of us happy. Perhaps Alpern simply believed that young Madoff had learned a valuable lesson and would not violate the rules again. So Alpern basically enabled Madoff to make some unethical actions disappear and continue running his business, where he otherwise probably would have gone out of business. And this was the start of Madoff's glowing reputation as a great investor. The same reputation that would win him his initial clients, who ultimately recommended him to thousands of other people. In a letter from prison, Madoff described for the first time how this business relationship with Saul Alpern supposedly worked. In the 1970s, my father-in-law put together a limited partnership comprised of some family and clients of his accounting practice, he explained. Madoff set up an account at his firm for the partnership, and Alpern accepted checks from friends, relatives, and clients, passing the money along to Madoff to invest on their behalf. Legitimately, Madoff insisted. The accounting firm received the trade confirmations and would break up the trades into individual transactions at the identical prices and proportionate shares, according to each individual member of the partnership account. The individuals reported this information as capital gains on their respective tax returns. My father-in-law's firm would charge an accounting fee for providing this bookkeeping and tax service. He added ingenuously, I imagine it was similar to an investment club account. Possibly Alpern thought he was merely introducing people to Madoff and mingling their money in his firm's accounts just to simplify things for them and for Madoff. Unsurprisingly, Madoff himself insisted there was nothing illegal in this agreement. As he saw it, Alpern had too few investors to require him to file with the securities regulators as an investment advisor or obtain a broker's license. But in effect, this partnership was an informal, unlicensed mutual fund, taking in money from retail investors and handing it to Madoff to manage. So that section we just heard was the real beginning of Madoff's business by referral. In the early days, it was mainly referrals from accounting firms, which by my understanding from reading the book, kind of acted as de facto financial advisors at that time. Not many people had financial advisors, but all business owners had accountants and a lot of other people had accountants as well. So a lot of Madoff's early investors came from his father-in-law's accounting firm, which was later called Avellino and Bienes after Frank Avellino and Michael Bienes took it over from Alpern when he retired. Remember those two names because they're two major characters in the entire Madoff scheme and we're going to hear about them again and again in our conversation today. So at this point, we're in the 1970s and as far as we know, Madoff is generating legitimate profits for his clients through a strategy called riskless arbitrage. Arbitrage is basically the practice of taking advantage of price differences in different markets to realize an instant profit. As a simple example, the price of cigarettes varies widely from state to state. If you live in a high-cost state, you could travel to a low-cost state, buy a bunch of cartons of cigarettes, and sell them back in the high-cost state for less than they cost in-state, but more than you paid for them out-of-state. This is illegal, of course, but it's just an example of how arbitrage works. Investors can pursue a bunch of different arbitrage strategies, but the one that Madoff was known for was buying convertible corporate bonds, and these were bonds that you could convert into, let's say, 10 shares of common stock. If you could buy the bond for $80 and the shares are trading for $10 a share, you can convert the bond and make a $20 profit instantly. Back to the book. 
According to Madoff, none of the big Wall Street firms were willing to do riskless arbitrage in small pieces for retail investors, but he was, and some of the biggest names on the street would send him small arbitrage orders to execute for their customers, he said. Because transaction costs would wipe out most arbitrage profits, which tended to be paper thin, arbitrage trading was usually pursued only by market insiders who could trade at far less cost than retail customers, market insiders such as Madoff. Madoff's firm indisputably became adept at handling the conversions quickly and efficiently. Because profits could be assured only if a trader could buy and sell almost simultaneously, Madoff, with the help in time of his younger brother Peter, began to build one of the fastest trading systems on the street. This type of trading had limited risk exposure, which was what I was looking for, Madoff recalled in his letter. I set about doing this trading for my firm's own account as well as my few clients. In the 1970s, I traded the strategies for the Alpern partnership accounts as well. He concluded, The combination of my market-making and arbitrage trading profits were substantial, and our capital grew nicely. His reputation grew right along with it. I'm going to say that again. His reputation grew right along with it. This is an important point for us to remember because to defraud people, you need to first win their trust. And to win people's trust, it's helpful to have a good reputation. So by most accounts, it seems that Madoff, despite a few hiccups, was a successful trader early in his career. And this built his reputation and got people talking about him. And as we'll see shortly, he continued to build his reputation through the community by being a pioneer on Wall Street. Starting in the 1970s, Madoff rose to prominence in the investing industry, which significantly boosted his reputation and credibility, both with investors and regulators. In these days, pretty much nothing was automated, and this led to a huge volume of paper records and many brokers falling behind on the paperwork. Madoff's firm dealt mainly in OTC securities, whose prices were printed daily on these physical pieces of paper called pink sheets. And because none of the prices were updated electronically, dealers could quote different prices to different customers. The market was dominated by a handful of big wholesale dealers with big inventory. Like hundreds of other small dealers, Madoff struggled to get attention. Often as not, Madoff's firm did not get called when there was business to do, a reporter noted in Traders Magazine. Along with a cadre of other far-sighted brokers, Madoff quickly saw that if the pink sheets were computerized so that their prices could be constantly updated and made available to every dealer, as on the ticker on the big board, the dealer offering the best prices for a stock stood a better chance of getting noticed. We felt, as a small market-making firm, that this would level the playing field for us, he told one writer. It would also give us a much-needed boost to his stock trading business. He was not alone in his conviction that the pink sheets could be automated. There are at least half a dozen people with a far better claim than his to having invented the automated market that became NASDAQ. But he backed the idea early and emphatically, even as some other market makers resisted it, because you had to show your hand and they didn't want to do that, Madoff recalled. If somebody just called you up from the pink sheets, you could say the price was stale and give different quotes to different people. The system we were proposing would give prices a level of transparency. It was quite controversial. The federal regulators, however, were on his side. They quickly saw that computerizing the pink sheets would shed more light on price quotes and create more competition in the OTC market. That could narrow spreads and give investors a better deal. Madoff allied himself firmly with the forces of automation. The regulatory battles over automation would allow Madoff to add a few brushstrokes each year to his portrait as a committed market innovator, an ally in the crusade to drag the nation's tradition-bound markets into the modern age. Even though everyone thinks of Madoff as a fraudster, he actually had a very successful, legitimate business, and this right here was the start of it. Aside from his money management business, which 
we know was a fraud, he ran a successful market-making business, which caused him to be well-known and respected on Wall Street. From the book again, Bernie Madoff embraced the larger idea that technology was clearly going to reshape the stock market and had to reshape the Madoff firm too. But his brother grasped all the nuts and bolts it would take to get there. As Peter's expertise grew, he took a larger role in overseeing the firm's trading operation, where the new technology hit the road every day. If some insider accounts are right, Peter's contribution to his brother's firm was even more significant. These chronicles credit Peter as the one who saw the potential for making a market in stocks that normally traded on the New York Stock Exchange. And it was that decision, one report noted, that catapulted the firm into the big leagues of wholesaling. So we'll also see later some of the other things he did to enhance his reputation among peers and regulators, but being an early champion of automation and a pioneer of the NASDAQ was one of the big ones. Then, of course, there was his reputation among clients and potential investors. So we see two major events that take place around the same time that created a huge influx of money for Madoff. The first was Avelino and Bienes changing the way they handled their clients. These guys are the accountants I mentioned a few minutes ago who were pooling their clients' money and giving it to Madoff to invest. Because their paperwork was becoming way too much of a burden, they decided to change their arrangement. Instead of holding individual accounts for each client, they would treat the client money as a loan, and they began paying a pre-stated interest rate to their clients on a quarterly basis. The second thing that happened was the hyperinflationary environment of the 1970s. As inflation climbed to double digits, investors were desperate for higher returns, and many of them were foolish enough to hope for high returns and low risk. So this is from the book again. That impossible dream was exactly what some lucky people said they got year in and year out from Frank Evelino and Michael Bienes. Real, steady interest payments, zero volatility. Because Madoff's returns, like those of a lot of arbitrage traders of that era, were always within a narrow range, the payment of interest to their clients made sense to them. It meant that for some quarterly payments, they'd pay out a little more than they received from Madoff, and for others, they'd pay out less than they received. But in the end, it would all even out. And if most clients left the interest in their accounts to grow, the rough edges would become all but invisible over time. Avelino and Bienes seem to have turned the speculative and risky practice of investing in the stock market into a smooth and predictable revenue stream, like interest on a high-grade corporate bond without the erosion of capital. Bernie Madoff's steady returns made this possible. In an inflation-obsessed environment, the change that Avelino and Bienes made in how they handled the first investors recruited by Saul Alpern put Alpern's little business, serving a cluster of friends and family, into overdrive. Word spread, and the word was that Avelino and Bienes was the only way to invest with the remarkable Bernie Madoff, who would not accept individual customer accounts. So the number of Avelino and Bienes investors grew exponentially, and the amount of money involved grew right along with it. And the firm always paid. No one ever complained or expressed doubts about their operation. No wonder the checks poured in and the referrals were incessant. Bienes insisted later that he and Avelino never advertised, we never promoted, we never sent out a Christmas card, and the money came in. When they had collected a substantial sum, they would send it to Madoff. At the end of each quarter, they would draw money from the firm's Madoff account and deposit it to cover the individual interest checks they mailed out. Apart from the money, the amount of trust that customers invested in this back-of-the-envelope arrangement was remarkable. No one on Wall Street or in regulatory agencies in Washington had ever heard of Avelino or Bienes. There were no brochures, no fact sheets, no paperwork at all, and the two accountants made it emphatically clear that there never would be, so don't ask. All you could expect was a simple receipt stating the amount you'd invested and the promised interest rate. That's all we'd say. We were very tough, Bienes recalled later. Those were the rules. Put nothing in writing. I wrote a note on this page that says, if you're in a situation like this, you're eventually going to get screwed. And this speaks to another one of the questions we're trying to answer by studying Madoff. How do otherwise intelligent people get tricked? 
I think the simple answer is greed. But if you consider a situation like the 1970s, where it was pretty difficult to make an investment that was going to keep up with inflation, it had to be super enticing to find something like Avelino Bienes were offering. And greed will make you ignore red flags. Red flags like a word of mouth investment. Red flags like a guaranteed rate that was higher than you could find in most other places. Red flags like the absence of paperwork and the insistence that there would never be any. These things seem glaringly obvious in hindsight, but I'm sure it was easy to ignore them in the moment. Best thing we can do to protect ourselves from future greed is to remember these lessons that we're learning here today. Don't let a desire for something to be true blind you to the fact that it's obviously false. Back to the book here. Despite these highly unorthodox arrangements, a host of investors came to believe that this, at last, was a legitimate solution to their gnawing investment dilemma. Traveling far beyond regulated Wall Street, they set up camp in a murky land with no written rules and no adult supervision. They nevertheless thought they had found a safe haven. They were getting the security of consistent returns without sacrificing the higher inflation-beating profits of more volatile, riskier investments. Wildly underestimating the risks they were taking, they felt lucky to have been allowed to invest money with, that is, to lend money to, Avelino and Bienes. For so many smart but credulous investors, the road to Madoff led through a regulatory no-man's land. And for many of them, that road was paved, wittingly or not, by their trusted business accountants. Frank Avelino and Michael Bienes were merely the first. We're going to see many more times how these different relationships were established to funnel money to Madoff. And like we just heard, Avelino and Bienes were the first, but they were only one of many. And so this is another recurring theme of both this book and fraud in general. New industries and or industries with little or no regulation are the perfect place to commit fraud. This doesn't mean that you should avoid these industries altogether, because oftentimes there's a lot of money to be made here. It does mean that you need to be much more cautious and go in with the expectation that you're much more likely to lose your money. All right, now we're going to take a look at how the fuel was poured on the fire. After Evelino and Bienes, Madoff had four ultra-wealthy clients who began to give him their money and bring him money from other people. This is an excerpt from the book. Stanley Chase was one of a quartet of very wealthy Jewish entrepreneurs who had set up accounts with Bernie Madoff by the end of the 1970s. The others in this elite club were Carl Shapiro, a legendary success in the garment industry, Norman F. Levy, a giant in the New York real estate business, and Jeffrey M. Pickhauer, the youngest of the four who would start out peddling tax shelters and emerge by the end of the next decade as a man for whom the term wheeler-dealer might have been invented. Starting in 1970, Chase set up three formal partnerships that raised money from other people and invested it with Madoff. This made Chase the forerunner of the hundreds of entrepreneurs who would create and peddle private funds designed solely to carry other people's money to Madoff's door. Chase set up the first formal feeder fund. A feeder fund is simply a fund that raises money from investors and puts it into one or more other funds. Feeder funds raising cash to invest with Madoff would proliferate like oversexed rabbits after 1990. But it all began here with Chase's first partnership. Chase collected fees from his investors for running these three early funds, which looked very much like informal mutual funds, although he never registered them with the SEC. He did not believe he needed to because he had only a few dozen direct investors. For similar reasons, he did not think he needed to be registered with the SEC to act as an informal investment advisor. Most of his clients found their way to him through word of mouth, either within the creative Hollywood circles frequented by his wife or through an accounting firm he used. And although he and his investment accounts were unregistered and unregulated, Chase and his many clients apparently felt confident that nothing would go wrong. Each of Chase's three partnerships took in money from additional sub-funds, other formal but unregistered partnerships that collected money 
and paid fees to their separate general partners. All the money, whether gathered directly through his own companies or indirectly through the sub-funds, was invested with Madoff. Unlike Chase, the other members of this core clientele did not form feeder funds or actively recruit streams of other investors for Madoff, but like Chase, they would stay with him for at least four decades, reaping astonishing profits and underwriting his credibility among other rich investors from Park Avenue to Palm Beach to Beverly Hills. Their affinity for him seemed at least partly rooted in their status as self-made men who had great confidence in their own well-tuned bullshit detectors. Yet those detectors never seemed to buzz around Bernie Madoff. Young as he was, he would not turn 40 until 1978, Madoff already had an air of calm mastery, free of any razzle-dazzle or phony showmanship. He didn't seem greedy for their patronage. He never tried to entertain them with jokes or personal stories. Rather, he listened appreciatively to their jokes and their personal stories. He never seemed to be trying to impress them, and, perversely, that impressed them. The fact that Madoff was able to impress these people and develop deep, trusting relationships was the key to his fraud. Because although he was managing money for thousands and thousands of people, most of that money came to him through conduits beginning with a few key relationships. Think of it like a set of Russian nesting dolls where each doll is passing their money on to the bigger one. And because of these relationships, Madoff only had to cultivate the trust and admiration of a relatively small number of people. I'm going to read you another excerpt here that will give you a better idea of how he was building these key relationships that opened the door to a ton of downstream money. By the early 1980s, Madoff had added another coterie of clients to the big four, a small group of wealthy French investors who liked to dabble in arbitrage in the U.S. market. He first connected with these French clients through Maurice Sage, the same notable Jewish leader who played a role in his introduction to Norman Levy. One of these influential clients was Jacques Amsalem, a French citizen who invested in the American market through the 1970s, most prominently by building up a big stake in the Shopwell supermarket chain at the end of the decade. Amsalem opened accounts with Madoff that remained active until his death in 1994 and were then passed along to his widow and his grandchildren. Through Amsalem, Madoff met another important French client, Albert Iguin, not sure if that's how you pronounce that, a French industrialist and Spinoza scholar. Madoff recalled making his first trip to Paris in the early 1980s to meet with Albert, who he said loved the stock market and wanted to do small-scale arbitrage in U.S. dollars. Although Albert was at least 30 years older than Madoff, they liked each other immediately and developed a close relationship. By the time he met Madoff, he was working largely as an elite financial advisor, and like Levy in New York, he helped open the doors of French banks to Madoff. And those introductions would generate billions of dollars of cash for him in the decades to come. So Madoff was cultivating these international investors, and he was also connecting with smaller brokerage firms in the U.S. that would ultimately funnel money his way. One regional brokerage firm that became a trusted conduit for Madoff investors was Engler & Budd in Minneapolis. Mendel Mike Engler founded the firm in 1961, and the relationship between his firm and Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities represented an important step forward in the evolution of Madoff's secret money management scheme, Trust by Association. Saul Alpern's early recruiting efforts were clearly aimed at people who wanted to invest with his brilliant son-in-law, even if they were unfamiliar with the arbitrage strategies he pursued. Avelino and Bienes inherited that cadre of trusting investors who spread Madoff's fame through whispered word of mouth. But Mike Engler recruited investors who might never have heard of Madoff, but knew and trusted Engler himself. It became a familiar pattern. Initially, people invested because they trusted Bernie Madoff. Ultimately, people invested because they trusted the person or institution that was the last link in the long chain that led to Madoff. 
This is in the same vein as the Russian nesting doll comment I made a few minutes ago, and it turns out to be an important and recurring theme throughout the book. I call it outsourced trust. Madoff didn't actually have to trick that many people because the people who initially trusted him based on his good reputation did all the advertising for him. The further you outsource your trust, the more likely you are to be a victim of fraud. Here's another concrete example of what I'm talking about. I called it my steady Eddie investment, one Minneapolis widow recalled. Her late husband had decided to invest with Madoff after his old friend Mike Engler made a low-key sales pitch in the living room of their Florida vacation home in the early 1990s. He didn't go into much detail, she recalled. He said it was considered a hedge fund, and the minimum investment was perhaps $1 million. Unlike her husband, she was a fairly experienced investor. Before they married, she had invested with Fidelity's famous Magellan Fund during its golden years and managed her own portfolio of blue chips and bonds. She had never heard of Madoff, but did some homework, reading a few newspaper articles about him and calling a wealthy couple she knew in Boston. She learned that the couple, whom she considered sophisticated investors, had been investing with Madoff for 30 years, and that other businessman she trusted, a very smart accountant in town, a Minneapolis shoe company owner, had checked Madoff out, satisfied themselves that he was honest, and handed some of their money to him to manage. All those people she trusted had been trusting Madoff for years. That was the clincher. She sent in her money. I could repeat myself with these types of examples for literally the whole podcast, but this type of thing happened time and time and time again. It was a chain of trust. It's a super common thing, but just like a game of telephone, the further you get from the source, the less reliable the message, and the less faith you should put in your outsourced trust. The next development in the Madoff saga was the founding of Comad Securities. It was the brainchild of Madoff and Sonny Cohn, who was Madoff's neighbor and friend from Long Island. It began as a small brokerage business, but it evolved into essentially yet another sales machine to funnel money toward Madoff. The lines between Comad and Madoff's much larger firm became fuzzy, in places almost invisible. Most of its small core of brokers spent their time introducing eager people to Bernie Madoff. Comad offered them access to the investing genius already whispered about in affluent circles, the man Carl Shapiro and Norman Levy trusted with their own money, the man other wealthy country club members and charity dinner guests wanted to trust with their money. Soon the compensation that brokers got for introducing new investors to Madoff was Comad's primary source of revenue, a fact that went unreported by Comad and unnoticed by regulators. The compensation arrangement seemed oddly structured. Each broker's commission was based on how much cash the investor handed over to Bernie Madoff, not how big the investor's account balances were in future months. So around the same time, Madoff switched his investing strategy from riskless arbitrage to what he called his split-strike conversion strategy. It's kind of a complicated concept if you don't have a lot of investing experience, but it basically involved owning a portfolio of blue-chip stocks and hedging that portfolio with options positions. So the intricacies of what he's supposedly doing don't matter much for the purposes of our conversation. What does matter is that he's buying stocks and he's also buying options. Remember that because it's going to come up later. All right, back to the book here. And this section I'm about to read is referring to his new split strike conversion strategy. This investment approach had some credibility on the street. In December 1977, a public mutual fund called the Gateway Fund was set up in Cincinnati to pursue roughly the same strategy. Its early track record was quite impressive, but highly volatile. Between 1977 and the period during which Madoff supposedly adopted a similar strategy, its monthly returns bounced around from a loss of 7.7% in October 1978 to a gain of 7.5% in August 1982. Beginning in 1983, its 12-month returns were formidable. 
if still unpredictable, in some 12-month periods during the early 1980s, its gains exceeded 20%. This would no doubt explain why the strategy looked like a winner to Madoff, and if he achieved comparable returns, he certainly would keep his investors happy. Unfortunately, the Gateway Fund remained too small and obscure to catch the attention of Madoff's later investors, who otherwise might have noticed that his pursuits of the same strategy was producing remarkably less erratic results. What's interesting about the strategies Madoff claimed to use is that they were obviously real strategies, but they had glaring issues when looked at in more detail. His arbitrage strategy, for example, likely wouldn't have worked with the amount of money he was supposedly managing. The strategy would begin to seem a little less plausible as the amount of money entrusted to Madoff grew with each passing year. Most arbitrage trade opportunities disappeared quickly if too much money was thrown at them too fast. And by the early 1980s, Madoff would be taking in a lot of money. Moreover, big institutional investors started to become more interested in convertible securities, the basic elements of these arbitrage strategies, in the late 1970s, and they would have been competing with Madoff for the best profit opportunities. And then with his split-strike conversion strategy, at least one other firm was pursuing the same strategy with super erratic results compared to Madoff's super steady results. This is a pretty important lesson and an answer to one of our big questions. What are common red flags that warrant further scrutiny? One answer is that when you have an investment or product or business that is significantly outperforming its peers, you need to ask why. And you need to get a satisfactory answer. In this particular case, a satisfactory answer did not exist. Sometimes it will, but you can't rule out fraud until you ask the questions. And keep in mind that you'll never get the answer of this is a fraud. What will happen is you'll get an answer that doesn't make sense, and that's when you should walk away. Okay, let's jump back and talk about the amount of money Madoff had flowing in because it was both insane and it was the opportunity for him to begin committing his fraud. But first, as a quick aside, there's a concept called the fraud triangle, and it's used to predict the likelihood of fraud taking place. When three elements are all present, people are more likely to commit fraud. Those elements are pressure, opportunity, and rationalization. So as a quick example, imagine a bookkeeper at a local grocery store has a child that needs braces. That's the monetary pressure. This bookkeeper balances the drawers at the end of the night by herself. That's the opportunity, an opportunity to steal cash and adjust the receipts to hide it. And the rationalization is that she's been asking for a raise for two years and her employer won't give it to her. Plus, she's using the money to pay for her kid's braces. She's doing it for her kid. So when you have these three factors, pressure, opportunity, and rationalization, that's called the fraud triangle. And it makes kind of the perfect storm for someone to commit fraud. So keep this concept in mind because we're going to come back to it later. So I'm sure you remember Avelino and Bienes. They're the accountants we mentioned a couple times now. Around the mid-80s, they shut down their accounting practice and decided to focus exclusively on their Madoff business. Back to the book here. Soon they had expanded far beyond Saul Alpern's friends and family, which had comprised fewer than 100 relatively modest accounts, and now had more than 1,000 customers with account balances nudging towards $100 million. These thousands of investors encompassed a hidden cottage industry of subcontractors, longtime investors who exploited their blessed access to Avellino and Bienes to make a little extra on the side. They accepted money from their own friends and families, pooled it, and invested it with Avellino and Bienes. These subcontractors would then divide the profits pro rata, perhaps minus a few dollars in fees. There's no way of knowing how many people privately became self-employed subcontractors for the accounting firm, but the numbers were certainly substantial. Some of them even set up their own financial advisory businesses on the strength of their link to Madoff. 
But that wasn't the only source of new cash. So by now, Madoff's reputation was growing, and he was becoming well-known in philanthropic circles and the wealthy Jewish community. This led to more money flowing in. Lawyers at several New York City firms set up formal partnerships so their clients could invest with Madoff. The same pattern developed at prominent accounting firms, such as Konigsberg Wolf and Stanley Chase's accountants, Halpern and Mantovani in Los Angeles, both of which formed conduit accounts through which their clients could invest indirectly with Madoff. Even Freeling and Horowitz, the small accounting firm that handled Madoff's brokerage firm audits, became a portal for others to invest with him. It was in these bull market days of the 1980s that a former SEC lawyer named Jeffrey Tucker decided to leave the law firm he'd formed and set up an options trading fund with one of his clients. That client shared Midtown office space with a handsome former banker named Walter Noel Jr., who was trying to build his own money management business. Sometime in 1989, Tucker parted company with his former client and began working exclusively with Noel to put the finishing touches on a new fund to be called Fairfield Greenwich. At about this time, Tucker's father-in-law, a retired knitwear manufacturer, suggested that Tucker and Noel check out a brilliant money manager he knew, Bernie Madoff. His meeting with Tucker and Noel must have been encouraging. In the middle of the summer of 1989, they invested $1.5 million with him, money they'd raised through a vehicle they later called the Fairfield International Fund. Six months later, they put another $1 million into Madoff's hands. By November 1990, they were ready to market their new $4 million Fairfield Century Fund and let the world in on their success with Madoff. Around this same time, there were two coinciding forces that created the perfect environment for Madoff's fraud. A weakening regulatory environment and a major market crash. So I'll give you a little background here. Under Ronald Reagan's deregulatory policies of the 1980s, the SEC's budget was cut significantly and its leadership changed. These factors led to the most talented staff lawyers leaving the SEC and in turn, their capabilities to monitor violations and enforce laws were significantly undermined. During the same time period, Madoff was elected to the NASDAQ's Board of Governors. NASDAQ was basically a self-regulatory organization for the securities industry. It was the predecessor to FINRA. And then in 1990, Madoff became the chairman of the NASDAQ. So consider all these factors combining. A weakening regulatory environment. Madoff had an inside seat on the self-regulatory body for the industry, so he was intimately familiar with the fact that the regulatory environment was weak. And then he becomes chairman of the NASDAQ, which bolstered his already impeccable reputation. While all this is happening, the stock market crash of 1987 puts tremendous pressure on Madoff's business because some of his biggest investors wanted to withdraw their money. I'm going to read you a few excerpts here that kind of all ties these things together. The market crash had profoundly shaken the confidence of some of Madoff's largest clients, men he thought he could count on to keep their portfolios intact and leave their wealth in his hands. Men such as Carl Shapiro and Jeffrey Pickhauer suddenly began to cash in their paper profits and withdraw their money. They were worried all the gains they had would disappear in the years just after 1987. Madoff said in his first prison interview. Of course, this is the story according to Madoff, possibly the least reliable source in history. So it might be true that years before the 1987 crash, he was already robbing Peter to pay Paul, robbing the Avellino and Bienes accounts, perhaps to pay Chase and Pickhauer, Levy and Shapiro. He has consistently denied this, and so far there has been no evidence to the contrary in the public record. But he did not deny that the roots of his Ponzi scheme were planted in the cash demands he faced following the 1987 crash. And after all, even if his Ponzi scheme was already up and running, those unexpected withdrawals after the crash would have pushed him to the wall. One must wonder if Madoff's first-hand awareness of the NASDAQ's failings as a regulator encouraged him to think he could get away with his Ponzi scheme long enough to work his way out of the losses he was incurring. So Madoff had the pressure of the market crash and withdrawals combined with the opportunity of huge sums of cash flowing in, a weak regulatory environment where he was unlikely to get caught, and an impeccable reputation where nobody would think he was capable of doing anything wrong. Tossed in some rationalization about this being a short-term solution until the market came back and you have 
all three elements of the fraud triangle. All right, I want to read you one more passage from this section that helps us answer another one of our key questions. How do fraudsters win trust? What was it about Madoff that made all these smart, analytical people trust him so much, so easily, for so long? Impressions gathered from personal experience with Madoff and from interviews with dozens of people who knew him provide a few clues. Unlike so many successful con artists, Madoff was never showy or brash, never overtly charismatic. Instead, without saying a word, he seemed to create a quiet but intense magnetic field that drew people to him, as if he were true north, or the calm eye of the storm. One associate called it an aura. Like a gifted actor, he drew one's attention simply by stepping on stage, by entering a room. He wore his expertise casually. He had the decoder ring, one former regulator recalled, and he seemed seductively unflappable in times that felt messy, chaotic, and scary to everyone else. He inspired confidence and made people feel safe. Another close associate recalled Madoff's cool smile during the almost weekly bomb scares at the Lipstick Building that followed the terrorist attacks in 2001. He was always the last one out of the office, ushering his, his nervous charges down the stairways. Like the calm-voiced pilot in the cockpit or the nightmare-soothing father at the bedside, he simply made it seem as if everything were under control, that everything would be fine. Those close to him knew he could be angry, pushy, controlling, cutting, and rude. But even then, he conveyed the reassuring toughness of a no-nonsense drill sergeant who never panicked or lost his grip, who drove his men hard but brought them all back alive. So what do we learn from this? I think the lesson is that fraudsters are talented. They're good at what they do. They exude confidence, and they're the type of people you inherently want to trust. That makes our job much harder when we're conducting due diligence, but it's a good reminder that we need to compartmentalize those feelings we have and not factor them into our calculations. Speaking of due diligence, let's talk about some red flags in Madoff's scheme and one event that almost made it fall apart. Of course, we're looking at these facts with the benefit of hindsight, so I'm sure they weren't as obvious in the moment. It would have been a tall ask for the average investor to have conducted his own due diligence and uncovered this fraud. But there were two groups of people who absolutely should have uncovered the fraud on behalf of the thousands of investors. Those were the SEC and the larger investors who should have been conducting thorough due diligence, the places like Fairfield Greenwich Fund that I mentioned earlier. So I'll set the scene with a passage from the book. Madoff grew increasingly careful about concealing how wide and deep the river of cash flowing into his investment advisory business had become. He admonished his feeder fund sponsors to keep quiet about who actually managed their money. He cautioned private clients not to talk about how much business they did with him, or even that they did business with him at all. His caution reflected the fact that his split-strike conversion strategy, like the arbitrage strategy it replaced, faced inflexible size constraints. Only so many shares of the blue chip stock supposedly in his portfolio were traded at one time, and the number of shares traded was reported every day. Only so many options were traded on the public exchanges in Chicago, and the volume of those trades were reported daily too. So a legitimate split-strike conversion strategy could not grow endlessly large. The bigger Madoff got, the harder it would be for savvy investors to believe that he was producing an honest profit. At some point, there simply wouldn't be enough options trading in the public or private markets to hedge the amount of stock he would have been buying. And there would have been little chance he could really buy and sell stocks on the scale required without shoving the markets up and down in very visible ways. Still, his whole aura of success as an investment manager was that he never failed to deliver the returns his investors expected. He had brought them profitably through all the bad times. The markets tumble in 1962. 
the doldrums of the 1970s, even the 1987 crash and its rocky aftermath. No one knew that he had borrowed money from Saul Alpern to replenish his customers' accounts in his early years, and no one knew that he had been squeezed by a rash of withdrawals in the late 1980s. All his clients knew was that he offered steady returns even in volatile times, and they all wanted to invest more money with him. It was in this setting, he says, that his Ponzi scheme began. As long as most of his clients left their balances intact, rolling over their reported profits, and making few, if any, withdrawals, he could pay out the occasional disbursement from the flood of new money coming in. It is the classic genesis of a Ponzi scheme on Wall Street. A money manager falls short of cash to cover some expense or placate some customer or deliver on some promise, and he steals a little money from client accounts. The rationale is always that he will be able to pay off his theft before it is detected. Perhaps this occasionally happens. Those are the Ponzi schemes we never learn about. More typically, the sum of stolen money grows much faster than the honest profits do, and the Ponzi scheme rolls on towards certain destruction. According to Madoff, this is what happened to him. Although he disputes the timing, he got into a hole possibly before 1980, more likely by the mid-1980s, but certainly by 1992, and he just couldn't get out again. His investment advisory business became a vast game of musical chairs. The only way he could hide the fact that there weren't enough chairs left for all his clients was to keep the music going for as long as he could. And then two of our familiar characters almost stopped the music. I'm sure you remember Avelino and Bienes. By this time, they had at least a thousand investors, and many of those investors had investors under them. Well, one of those investors had published a fact sheet for the fund he was raising, and the fact sheet advertised 13.5% yields with no risk of losing capital. This fact sheet made its way to the SEC. Uh, somebody reported it or turned it in or something, and the SEC launched an investigation. So through this investigation, the SEC learned that Avelino and Bienes had 3,200 lenders, aka investors, with a total investment of about $440 million. The SEC ultimately shut down Avalino Bienes basically for running an unregistered mutual fund and required them to return the money to the investors. The SEC also, of course, ended up at Madoff's door. Here's a glimpse into how that investigation played out. Frank DePascali had been generating the account statements that were sent out regularly to customers assisted by other close associates on the small staff devoted to Madoff's investment clients. Even after Madoff launched his fraud, these statements continued to look sufficiently convincing to deflect any skeptical inquiry from investors, largely thanks to DePascali. But constructing those records was kindergarten fraud compared with the task posed by the SEC investigation in the summer of 1992. If the Ponzi scheme was already up and running, as seems likely, Madoff had to produce trading records for seven Avelino and BNS accounts that would show the necessary volume of consistently profitable trades going back at least several years. These records had to be convincing enough for federal regulators, not just for customers and private accountants. And they were needed immediately, before the SEC showed up to look at the documents on file at the accounting firm. DePiscali came through for Madoff, using self-taught computer skills and the historical stock and options prices available to any brokerage firm. He created a convincing paper trail covering several years of complex trading activity that almost certainly had never occurred. Based on those phony records, an SEC lawyer later reported that his staff had analyzed the Avalito and BNA's trading accounts at the Madoff firm, verifying the equity value in these accounts. A footnote showed that Madoff had fluently explained it all to them, as he would for years to come, with calm confidence and trading terminology that was most likely over their heads. Still, DePascali's fabricated records and Madoff's deft conversations with regulators, unschooled in current trading jargon, were just delaying tactics. Necessary, but nowhere near sufficient to keep the trap from snapping shut. Within months, the SEC would get a court order requiring Madoff to return the $400 million to Avalino and Bienes' customers by the end of November 1992. 
Madoff later acknowledged that this cash demand posed difficulties for him, although he denied it was because he was already running a Ponzi scheme. Rather, he claimed it was because the bona fide arbitrage positions in the Avelino and Bienes accounts, like the arcane synthetic trades in the accounts of his other big clients, could not be easily or rapidly liquidated. I was actually doing the trades, he insisted, but almost certainly this was not true. Most likely, there were no convertible bonds or preferred stocks in the Avelino and Bienes accounts at all. Still, even Madoff conceded that he urgently needed about $400 million, and there were a limited number of ways he could get it. According to him, he raised the cash from three of his biggest clients, Carl Shapiro, Jeffrey Pickhauer, and Norman Levy. The three men simply agreed to take over the positions in the Avelino and Bienes accounts and put in fresh cash to do so, Madoff claimed. Shapiro, Pickhauer, and Levy all sent in actual money. New money, he said. Records unearthed in the subsequent investigations confirmed that Madoff got a lot of the cash he needed from the accounts of Norman Levy. By late November, Madoff had scraped together the money he needed to placate the SEC regulators, who did not inquire where he got it or pursue any of the intriguing loose ends that dangled around the case. So basically, the SEC conducted a shoddy investigation that Madoff was able to dance through with some fake account statements created by Frank D. Pascali, his longtime employee, who only had a high school degree. It's incredible and rather sad that the work of a high school grad was able to fool the supposedly inquisitive minds of SEC lawyers, but that's a testament to the deregulatory environment that I mentioned earlier and subsequent lack of talent at the SEC. And this is the most wild part of the whole fiasco. So here, this is from the book again. The SEC was satisfied and moved on to other issues. One of the sad quirks of the Madoff case is that of his thousands of investors, the only ones who could have recovered all the fictional wealth shown on their account statements and kept any money they had withdrawn in the past were those clients of Avelino and Bienes who took the money the SEC returned to them in 1992 and walked away. Most of them didn't do that. They didn't realize that they had been rescued. They thought instead that they had been banished from Eden, shut out of a wonderful low-risk investment that still paid good interest rates. So they were delighted when Madoff invited them all to open new accounts directly with him, even if the rates were lower than they had been getting from Avelino and Bienes. Most of the money Madoff had paid out was put right back into his hands. The SEC investigation in 1992, incomplete though it was, had significant consequences for Bernie Madoff's expanding fraud. First, it forced Madoff to apply to his Ponzi scheme some of the computer technology he was already using in his legitimate business. It was simply impossible for Frank DePascali to concoct manually the trading records and monthly statements for the thousands of new accounts Madoff had suddenly inherited from Avelino Bienes. Madoff needed help to automate the Ponzi process somehow, and he turned to DePascali for help. DePascali, in turn, allegedly relied on two computer programmers who had joined the firm a few years earlier and who were later accused of designing software for one of the firm's new IBM AS400 computers that simplified the process of generating the fictional account statements. DePascali and some of his staff allegedly researched the necessary trades from the historic record, and then the customized Ponzi software would allocate those trades in perfect proportions among the various customer accounts using a simple mail-merge computer function. Besides reducing the manual labor involved, this automation provided new opportunities for deception. It was around this time that Madoff leased separate space on the 17th floor of the Lipstick Building, ostensibly for his new IBM computers, but actually to create a more secure environment for his increasingly elaborate fraud. As he later recalled, he set up the separate suite because... I could not have operated in view of the other people on the 18th floor. The nondescript warren of offices and cubicles on the 17th floor became Frank DePascali's domain, a private laboratory for his creative deceptions. As DePascali perfected his craft, he branched out. He devised fake clearinghouse forms that showed up on computer screens 
perfect replicas, regularly updated. On Madoff's orders, he kept a supply of old letterhead stationary and used it when backdated paperwork was needed for files that regulators wanted to see. In time, he even ordered the creation of a software program that made it look to an observer as if a trader at one computer terminal were buying or selling for an investor's account, when in fact the trader was merely exchanging keystrokes with another staff member at a computer hidden in a room down the hall. This Potemkin Village paper trail became so convincing that Madoff was able to fool dozens of insufficiently skeptical regulators and inadequately observant lawyers and accountants for years. Now, this was obviously a very sophisticated fraud, and the elaborate records created by DePascali would have been convincing to anyone at first glance. But those records would not have held up to deeper digging and independent verification, which is what the SEC should have done but never did. If they had only independently verified the trades or confirmed with the DTCC that Madoff was actually holding the securities he claimed to be holding, the whole thing would have unraveled almost instantly. And verification of assets is the number one thing you would do in investigation of a Ponzi scheme. But the SEC was operating at an amateur level, so they didn't do that, and they basically allowed the fraud to continue. So as a super interesting aside here, there was one individual who did enough due diligence in the early 90s to realize that Madoff was a fraud. In 1991, the legendary investor Ed Thorpe was asked by McKinsey & Company to review their portfolio. One of their investments made him look twice. The investment consistently returned 1-2% to every single month, dating back to the late 60s. When he looked at the statements, Thorpe saw that the strategy involved options positions called collars. It was a legitimate strategy, but it should have resulted in losses during down months. What Thorpe found was a mysterious index option trade in every month where they would have lost, instead resulting in a gain. So Thorpe asked to do a site visit to meet the investors responsible for the miraculous gains, but Bernie was out of town and his brother Peter wouldn't allow it. So Thorpe kept digging. He researched the mysterious trades and found that half of them never took place. There was no record of any trades on any exchanges for the prices reflected in the account statements Thorpe was reviewing. He found another quarter of the trades couldn't have happened because they exceeded the volume of the exchanges on which they were traded. The last quarter of the trades didn't appear to have happened anywhere. So Thorpe asked a favor of some of his friends at Bear Stearns. He asked them to confirm if the parties on the opposite sides of the trade was Madoff and Company, to which they responded, it was not. At this point, Thorpe knew it was a fraud, and he advised McKinsey to end their relationship with Madoff, which they did. So the cool thing about this is Ed Thorpe, through his contacts and the contacts at McKinsey, they were able to move about half a billion dollars away from Madoff. So just some good due diligence by somebody who knew what he was doing was able to uncover this fraud pretty quickly and pretty easily and get a lot of people out of it. So we have two super important takeaways here. The first is that Thorpe asked a fairly short series of questions when something didn't make sense. And then he kept asking questions until he realized that it didn't make sense because it was a fraud. This was not a particularly hard mystery to unravel for the person with the right skills. And there were plenty of people with the right skills, but almost none of them cared to ask the questions. If something doesn't make sense, you need to keep asking questions. Second takeaway requires a little bit more context. After Thorpe discovered the fraud, he shared this information with a close friend of his, and the guy was a prominent investor who was one of Madoff's major investors. This friend was the type of person who made decisions based on consensus of the majority. So he decided to stay invested with Madoff and to continue to raise money for Madoff all the way through 2008 when everything fell apart. This guy had the information served to him on a platter, and he chose to ignore it, because it didn't match the consensus opinion. Our takeaway here is that the majority can easily be wrong because they aren't experts. And if you need to make an important decision, 
listen to an expert, even and especially if he is not in the majority. So I pulled this story from Ed Thorpe's interview with Tim Ferriss, and he he tells it in a little bit more detail than I told it. I'm going to link that in the show notes in case you want to check it out. All right, so now that the Avellino and Bienes relationship and referral network was no more, Madoff needed to rely more heavily on hedge funds to supply his cash. One of those big sources was the Fairfield Greenwich Fund that we mentioned earlier. Let me give you a little context from the book, and then we'll jump back and talk about the Fairfield Greenwich group a little bit. By the end of 1999, the little hedge fund that had entrusted $4 million to him in 1990, him being Madoff, had an almost staggering $3 billion in its Madoff accounts, and its assets were growing more than 30% a year through new deposits and putative earnings. Hundreds of millions of dollars had come into Fairfield Greenwich's Madoff-related funds from other hedge funds in Europe and the Caribbean. As its assets grew, so did the firm's management fees, and consequently, the size of the fortunes financing the lifestyles of its lucky partners. The Noels, with their island luxuries, and the Tuckers, who took up thoroughbred breeding in upstate New York's Tony Saratoga region, lived very well. It is not clear exactly how much Tucker and the extended Noel clan collected in fees in the 1990s, but it probably totaled more than $45 million in 1998, a year when there were only a handful of partners sharing in the tiny firm's revenues. Records filed in later lawsuits would show that the firm would collect nearly $920 million between 2002 and 2008. So this was a significant source of cash for Madoff, and you would think that a fund investing so much money with one individual would conduct super thorough due diligence. Here's a glimpse into their process from the book. With his grounding in securities law, Tucker was the one who went out and supposedly kicked the tires in the due diligence examinations that Fairfield Greenwich Group conducted. It was during these early days of cultivating Fairfield Greenwich, which almost certainly coincided with the early days of the Ponzi scheme, that Madoff and DePescali perfected the talking points for their split-strike conversion investment strategy and tried them out on Tucker and Noel. It worked like a charm. Of course, there was nothing illicit about the strategy itself. It was familiar to any equity options trader at the time. In 1989, Tucker and Noel could not have known that Madoff's alleged execution of that strategy over the years would produce profits more consistent and substantial than the strategy itself ought to have provided. They could not know that the amount of money Madoff would ultimately claim to be deploying would have moved through the stock and options market like a battleship in a bathtub if he'd actually been making trades. At the beginning, it made sense, and it made money especially for them. After all, as fund managers, they pocketed 20% of the net profits Madoff produced for their private investors. They developed a formal checklist of questions to ask about a money manager's operations, questions they put to Bernie Madoff when they tagged along on Tucker's visits. So they were his due diligence team. Madoff or DePascali would answer some of the questions, show them the fake records, perhaps even do a little phony computerized trading in their accounts as they watched, and then show them the bogus clearinghouse statements that backed up what they had been told. Some questions Madoff simply refused to answer. In hindsight, his intransigence may seem like a blatant red flag, but at the time, given Madoff's status in the financial industry and apparent success on Wall Street, it was all too convincing. The young due diligence staffers apparently did not raise any concerns with the partners, or if they did, they were ignored. As Fairfield Greenwich expanded and raised money to invest elsewhere besides with Madoff, its people reviewed audits and asked careful questions of those other money managers. Like Madoff, the other managers were successful, and the other small funds prospered. Unlike Madoff, those other managers actually answered questions fully and provided the documentation requested. In time, Fairfield Greenwich began to take pride in the quality of its due diligence work and describe it in glowing terms in its marketing materials to distinguish itself from the other hedge funds popping up and offering oddly similar returns. 
as you heard several times just in those short passages, Madoff repeatedly refused to answer certain questions that were part of the due diligence process. Now, maybe if this was common across the industry, it wouldn't have been an issue. But as you also heard, the other money managers answered all the questions. Madoff's anomalous behavior should have been a major red flag. This is an important lesson for us to remember. When we find anomalies, we need to find an explanation for them. If we can't, it's best to avoid them. Another one of the themes we're seeing recur here is what I call the bystander effect of investing. The bystander effect is a psychological theory that says people are less likely to offer help to someone in need if they're in a crowd because they assume someone else will do it. Similar thing is taking place here with due diligence. Investors are either entirely foregoing due diligence or conducting shoddy due diligence and assuming that if something was bad, someone else would have found it. This goes hand in hand with the outsourced trust that I mentioned earlier, and it's something we want to avoid. So at this point, we've discussed some of the more subtle red flags, the things that people conducting due diligence or regulatory exams should have noticed. But then in May of 2001, two articles were published within weeks of each other, both raising major questions about Madoff's operation. The first was published in a hedge fund industry publication by a writer named Michael Okrant. This is from the book. Okrant wrote that more than a dozen credible people in the hedge fund world, none identified by name, were mystified by Madoff's performance. They didn't doubt the annual returns, but Okrant observed that such results were considered somewhat high for the strategy Madoff claimed to be using. Okrant reminded readers about Gateway, the small public mutual fund that had pursued a similar split-strike strategy since 1978, but experienced far greater volatility and lower returns during the same period. The experts Okrant consulted asked why no one has been able to duplicate similar returns using the strategy and why other firms on Wall Street haven't become aware of the fund and its strategy and traded against it, as has happened so often in other cases. The article also questioned why Madoff agreed to take only the trading commissions the funds generated, allowing the fund managers to keep the lion's share of the very hefty fees. His role, his fee structure, his secrecy, it all ran counter to the rules of the hedge fund game as they knew it. Okrant acknowledged that four or five professionals he interviewed understood the strategy and did not dispute its reported returns, further evidence that Madoff had at least selected a plausible cover story for his fraud, which had likely been in operation for at least a decade by now. But even those professionals doubted that Madoff could be pursuing the strategy the way he claimed, using S&P 100 stocks and options, especially with $6 billion under his management. The next piece was published in Barron's, a publication with a much wider reach, and this one rattled a few investors, which prompted a due diligence visit from Jeffrey Tucker of Fairfield Greenwich. Back to the book here. When Tucker arrived for this impromptu due diligence visit, Madoff was ready thanks to Frank DePascali's creative efforts. Besides the phony trade confirmations and account statements that had been generated for more than a decade, he had set up the bogus trading platform that made it appear as if actual trades were being conducted with European counterparties, although the reciprocal trader was actually an employee on another computer terminal hidden in a different room. And he had the clincher, apparent proof that all the stocks he claimed to have purchased were safely held in Madoff's account at Wall Street's central clearinghouse, the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, officially called the DTCC, but known informally among veteran traders as the DTC. This was the acid test for DePascali's masterpiece, a computer simulation of a live feed from the DTCC. He had taken care to duplicate exactly the clearinghouse's logo, the page format, the printer font and type sizes, and the paper quality of actual DTCC reports. Of course, these counterfeit DTCC records would always verify that the required number of shares were there in Madoff's account. Only an authorized call to the DTCC itself would have proven otherwise, and the clearinghouse was careful to keep customer information confidential. 
Tucker later told regulators about this pivotal visit with Madoff at the Lipstick Building. Far from resenting any implied suspicions, Madoff encouraged Tucker on this occasion to be skeptical, to verify the trading being conducted for the Fairfield Century Fund. Tucker was shown an official-looking purchase and sale blotter, showing a record of each trade for his funds. Then he was shown a journal that supposedly contained stock records for the Madoff firm. Pick any two stocks, Madoff said. Tucker first picked AOL Time Warner, which he knew was among the Century Fund's holdings. Meanwhile, either Frank or Bernie had activated the computer screen, explaining it would provide a live feed to Madoff's account at the DTCC. They continued to move pages of the screen until they got to the AOL page, Tucker recalled. In the stock journal, he could see the number of AOL shares that Madoff should have owned for his hedge fund clients. On the screen, he could see the number of shares credited to Madoff by the clearinghouse. Tucker had never actually seen a live feed from a broker's DTCC account, as subsequent lawsuits would point out. Even if he had, it is unlikely he could have detected that this one was fake. After all, DePiscali had access to a real DTCC account screen every day. There was one available to the legitimate brokerage firm, and he had taken great pains to ensure that his imitation exactly matched the original. Madoff encouraged Tucker to pick another stock, but Tucker was satisfied. The shares were there. There was no possibility of fraud. He left reassured that there was nothing to the Barron's article, no reason at all to be concerned. Even without the tour de force demonstration provided to Tucker, most of Madoff's burgeoning collection of hedge fund clients apparently shrugged off the skeptical articles in May 2001, certain that their trust was justified by Madoff's character and reputation. One of them, Ezra Merkin, kept a copy of the Barron's article in his files for years, but continued to invest hundreds of millions of dollars with Madoff. Now, although we'd probably like to hold Tucker accountable here, I'm not sure there's any way he would have been able to verify the information Madoff provided. Regulators, on the other hand, should have been able to confirm this information. The Barron's article specifically raised some eyebrows at the SEC, but consistent with their weak track record, they didn't even open an investigation. Lack of action had become almost reflexive at the understaffed agency, uncertain of its mandate and unsure of itself. The turnover rates for SEC lawyers, accountants, and investigators, which averaged 15% in 2000, were twice the average rate for comparable government positions. At the salaries available, it seemed unlikely that those spots would be claimed by anyone but raw recruits. In the years ahead, increasingly creative Wall Street criminals like Bernie Madoff would be policed by increasingly inexperienced and ill-trained SEC investigators. This is a theme we're seeing throughout this story, and I believe we'll see in the other books we study for this season. New industries and industries with little regulation or poor regulation are prime targets for fraud. There were numerous opportunities where the SEC should have detected and shut down Madoff's fraud, but due to their poor funding, poor leadership, and inexperience of staff, they were just unequipped to deal with a criminal as crafty as Madoff. Also, hedge funds, which were some of the major sources of Madoff's cash, were a relatively new, little understood, and pretty lightly regulated industry. One major takeaway here, if you're playing in new or lightly regulated industries, be hyper aware of red flags for fraud. Around the same time, a strange quantitative analyst named Harry Markopoulos began referring accusations about Madoff to the SEC. This is from the book. When Markopoulos analyzed Madoff's returns, he found that they did not remotely track the performance of the blue chip securities Madoff was supposedly buying. He saw no honest reason why Madoff would let his feeder funds reap the huge management fees while he only got the trading commissions. He doubted there were enough index options in the world to hedge a portfolio as big as Madoff's, and he noticed that Madoff had lost money in only three of the 87 months between January 1993 and March 2000, while the S&P 500 had been down in 28 of those months. Markopoulos immediately and accurately concluded that Madoff was cheating somehow, either running a Ponzi scheme or using his knowledge of 
incoming orders to trade ahead of his customers and thereby benefit from the price changes caused by their transactions. Unfortunately, because Markopoulos was crude, condescending, and unwilling to convey his complicated findings in simple language, he was not taken seriously, or at least not seriously enough for the SEC to open an investigation. So in addition to Markopoulos and the two articles that I just mentioned, other entities were asking questions about Madoff as well. One of those entities was Ivy Asset Management, a firm on Long Island that invested their personal money, their private clients' money, and their pension fund clients' money with Madoff. By 1991, some Ivy executives had heard disquieting rumors about Madoff, according to emails obtained through subsequent litigation. By 1997, they had noticed that the volume of publicly traded index options was too small to cover the implementation of Madoff's investment strategy just for their own clients, and they believed him to be handling several billion dollars for other clients as well. Flying back to New York City with Bernie Madoff after a meeting with one of the upstate union pension funds, a senior Ivy executive allegedly asked him about this mismatch between options volume and the assets he managed. Madoff brushed off the question, saying he might trade a few options with banks or foreign exchanges, but that it was rare. The Ivy executive apparently did not argue with Madoff, although he knew that the mismatch actually happened quite frequently, but he must have looked unconvinced. A few months later, perhaps to head off any lingering doubts, Madoff mentioned to this executive that he occasionally traded options on other exchanges, but the options that Madoff supposedly used were traded exclusively on the Chicago Board Options Exchange. His story still didn't add up. One of Ivy's founders grew even more pointedly doubtful about Madoff over the next few years, although he later denied he suspected a Ponzi scheme. In an internal memo in 2001, he observed that Madoff can personally bankrupt the Jewish community if he's not real. Responding in 2002 to a staffer's attempt to analyze and explain Madoff's remarkably consistent returns, he wrote, Ah, Madoff, you omitted one other possibility. He's a fraud. Based on their growing uneasiness, the Ivy executives had eased their own wealth and that of their private clients out of Madoff's hands by roughly 2000 They did not remove their pension clients' money from the Madoff accounts, according to a subsequent lawsuit against them. Apparently, the unions were happy with the steady returns. Moreover, Ivy benefited from the continuing fees and from having the pension money counted as part of its assets under management, a key benchmark in the investment advisory business. So the small pension plans for a host of union workers, totaling more than $220 million, stayed with Madoff. That little bit we heard there about the management fees is something that pops up again and again throughout this story. Hedge funds were making crazy money on management fees because Madoff delivered consistent returns. But when the hedge funds wanted to conduct thorough due diligence, they were often met with resistance from Madoff. He would simply tell them to take their money out and leave him alone. So they had two options stop pestering Madoff and quietly collect their management fees, despite unanswered questions, or take their money elsewhere. What do you think most of them did? Of course, they kept quiet. We'll take a look at one more example of somebody taking issue with Madoff before we move on. In 2002, an investment consulting firm called Rogers Casey was reviewing a line of hedge funds that invested in Madoff from a company called Tremont Partners. They didn't like what they found. Here's what it says in the book. The basis for this warning was that Tremont simply could not see inside Madoff's black box. It receives limited independent third-party transparency, the firm said, translating its simple message into the jargon of the financial consultant. Rogers Casey's analysts did not like Madoff's habit of moving entirely into treasury bills at the end of each year, clearing his own trades, and sending out his own trade confirmations, which they noted he could be making up. Rogers Casey's rating for the Madoff-related Tremont funds was sell. Notes in the Rogers Casey files for the Tremont funds, dated February 26, 2004, 
actually included some clear, unequivocal English. The Madoff exposure is a potential disaster. Even though some products would not be directly affected, Tremont's products will still see their reputations vaporized when Madoff rolls over like a big ship. I think the point we should take away from all these examples is that the people who were honestly conducting due diligence were easily able to find plenty of red flags. So while it's easy to look back with the benefit of hindsight, it was also possible to detect this fraud while it was happening and remove yourself as an investor. As the author wrote, nobody seemed to ever poke too seriously into what was going on there. There had been a few bumbling queries from the SEC in the past few years, but Madoff had easily deflected them. A few smart consultants and a few private banking teams had come across the same inconsistencies that worried the Ivy Asset Management team in the late 1990s and had quietly blacklisted Madoff. Even some very influential people, prominent hedge fund managers, some senior people at Credit Suisse, all of whom would have carried weight with regulators, had written him off and warned their clients to get out. Fortunately for Madoff, none of these influential people seem to have picked up the phone and shared a few forceful warnings with Madoff's regulators or with any law enforcement agency. Finally, in 2005, Madoff was facing a real SEC exam. It was a belated response to a set of emails that an alert SEC staffer had found in the files of a prominent hedge fund firm during a truly routine examination nearly a year earlier. The fund manager, Renaissance Technologies, had an indirect stake in Madoff through its Meritor hedge fund. The Renaissance emails, written in late 2003, expressed the same mystification about Madoff's performance and practices as the Barron's and Okrant articles had in the spring of 2001. In one of the emails, a senior executive shared his doubts with his investment committee. First of all, we spoke to an ex-Madoff trader, the executive said. He said Madoff is pretty tight-lipped, and therefore he didn't know much about it, but he didn't really know how they made money. Then, a respected hedge fund consultant told us in confidence that he believes Madoff will have a serious problem within a year. We are going to be speaking to the consultant in 11 days to see if we can get more specifics. But this executive already had pretty much made up his mind. The point is that as we don't know why he does what he does, we have no idea if there are conflicts in his business that could come to some regulator's attention. It just didn't make sense to risk a scandal for the relatively modest return they expected. The risk-reward on this bet is not in our favor, he concluded, adding, please keep this confidential. The SEC examiner showed the intriguing emails to his supervisor, who took them seriously and asked him to learn more from the hedge fund. But when the SEC staffer returned, the Renaissance executive was dismissive. They surely could have helped the young SEC examiner who was trying to figure out what Madoff was doing. But apparently, the people at Renaissance, like those at Credit Suisse and Rogers Casey, who had quietly blacklisted Madoff by early 2004, didn't want to get involved. A top Renaissance executive, Nat Simons, later explained that he felt that all the information Renaissance had was readily available to the SEC. Despite the fact that we are kind of smart people, we were just looking at matters of public record. It's not like we needed a PhD in mathematics, Simon said. Besides, he said, the information they relied on wasn't that hard to get. Indeed, although Simons didn't know it, the SEC had already gotten this information without any help from elite players such as Renaissance. Although it dismissed Harry Markopoulos' accusations in 2000 and 2001, it received similar warnings in May 2003. The tip came into the SEC's Washington office as a result of a 2002 survey of the hedge fund industry by the SEC's Investment Management Office. At that time, the agency encouraged executives to report any suspicious activity, and on May 20, 2003, a hedge fund managing director actually did. 
He told the SEC in confidence that his firm had considered investing in two different Madoff feeder funds, but backed off both times. There were all kinds of red flags, he said, but the most worrisome was the fact that nobody he talked with in the options trading community confirmed doing any business with Madoff. Of course, that community of traders was supposed to keep customer information confidential, but it still seems strange not to confirm even a general business relationship with someone who should have been one of their biggest customers. The tip was sent along to the SEC office that handled brokerage firms, where it sat unexamined for months. When it was finally dusted off, the inquiry that followed did not focus on the mysterious lack of options trading, but it still came agonizingly close to uncovering Madoff's fraud. Someone on the exam team had the idea of getting two years worth of Madoff trading records from the industry regulators at the NASD, which would immediately have shown that he was not trading billions of dollars worth of blue chip stocks and options. But the request was never sent for reasons no one involved could later recall. An official study would later conclude that the staffers decided it was easier to request the trading records from Madoff himself, not from the NASD. And with Frank DePascali's help, Madoff came up with fake records. Of course, questions were left hanging. But in early 2004, the shorthanded SEC staff members were told to shift their attention to a wide-ranging investigation of the mutual funds industry. No one logged the tip from Harry Markopoulos in 2001 or the nearly identical one from the hedge fund manager in 2003 into the agency's internal database of investigative information. So there were no records of those earlier unexamined warnings when the emails from Renaissance Technologies were found. So in just those few pages, there are a few interesting points I want to talk about. First is that this exam in 2005 was prompted by the emails from Renaissance Technologies. But those emails were preceded by tips from Harry Markopoulos in 2001 and a hedge fund manager in 2003, neither of which were properly documented or followed up on. I wrote myself a note here that says, if small concerns are never noted, they can't add up to big concerns. Obviously, the SEC bungled this, but in the course of conducting your own due diligence, write everything down even little things that may seem inconsequential, because when combined, they might equal something that you want to pay attention to. The other takeaway is not to rely on regulators to protect you. They may do a great job, but they may also be understaffed and under-equipped. So take the job upon yourself. The other thing I want to point out is the tip from the hedge fund manager. In this guy's tip to the SEC, he said the biggest red flag was that nobody in the options community confirmed doing business with Madoff. This indicates the hedge fund manager asked a few simple questions and did not receive satisfactory answers. So often, all you have to do is ask simple questions and keep asking until you get the answer or until you realize the answer doesn't exist and something might be wrong. Most people didn't take the time to ask the simple questions or they accepted not receiving an answer. And then this quote from Nat Simons at Renaissance Technology basically reinforces the same point. He says, Despite the fact that we were kind of smart people, we were just looking at matters of public record. It's not like we needed a PhD in mathematics. And then finally, the fact that the SEC was going to request Madoff's trading records from the NASD, but they decided it would be easier to request them from Madoff himself. This is just stupid. If Madoff was doing something wrong, he could just give them fake records, which is exactly what he did. So when you're trying to confirm something about a person, don't ask the person for confirmation. Ask an independent third party. This is kindergarten stuff, and it's amazing the SEC dropped the ball on that. So what was the result of that 2005 exam? The SEC closed the exam, concluding that Madoff wasn't front-running his trading customers to benefit his hedge fund clients. This was, of course, true, but they had been looking for the wrong thing. The inexperience of the guys working the exam meant they asked the wrong questions or simply didn't ask the questions at all, and Madoff lived to see another day. 
Not long after closing their first exam in 2005, the SEC opened another exam at the end of the year. This is from the book again. What happened to Markopoulos' third submission to the SEC is a textbook lesson in bureaucratic bungling. Members of the Boston enforcement staff read Markopoulos' latest memo and met with him in person for several hours on October 25, 2005. They were impressed, indeed alarmed. While the memo acknowledged that front-running was a remotely possible explanation for Madoff's success, it emphasized that a Ponzi scheme was far more likely. If Harry was right, the investor losses would be in the billions of dollars. But once again, the Boston office was stuck with the bureaucratic reality. Madoff was in New York, so the SEC office in New York would have to investigate him. The Boston team tried hard to impress the New York office with the credibility of this informant and the urgency of his warning. In an uncommon move, the head of the Boston office personally made the referral to his counterpart in New York to underscore how important he thought the tip was. A branch chief in Boston followed up the next day, October 27th, with an email to all three assistant enforcement directors in the New York office, offering to hook Markopoulos up directly with the appropriate staffers in New York. The warning from Boston could not have been clearer. The SEC needed to find out if Madoff was running a Ponzi scheme. The team assigned to the task in New York had virtually no experience investigating Ponzi schemes. The culture of the agency discouraged staff members from reaching outside their own silo for help, so staffers knowledgeable about Ponzi schemes were not consulted, and even those who thought they knew something about Ponzi schemes clearly didn't. Despite the clarity of the warning, people on the team would later recall that they never truly thought it was credible that a man like Bernie Madoff could be the criminal. He simply didn't fit their ill-informed image of the typical Ponzi scheme artist. No one bothered to go through the older case files carefully, so no one noticed the nearly identical complaint the hedge fund manager made in 2003 or the Renaissance emails found in 2004. And no one noticed that the early investigators never actually looked for a Ponzi scheme at all. The investigative team decided it would be a good idea to track down some of the counterparties to these mysterious options trades before questioning Madoff about it. It would have been an excellent idea. Indeed, if it had been diligently pursued, it would certainly have exposed Madoff's crime. Then, in mid-February, the team asked Madoff for a piece of paper that he knew could send him to prison. They wanted a list of all the accounts through which he executed, cleared, or settled any trades, including the disputed options trades. Trades they still believed he was making. Of course, he was not executing, clearing, or settling any trades at all, but he could not refuse the request without setting off all kinds of tripwires at the SEC. So, on February 23rd, Madoff gambled big and produced a six-page list of the financial entities through which he was allegedly conducting trades for his hedge fund clients, along with his account number at the DTCC Clearinghouse. Then, he waited for the sky to fall. So this happened in February of 2006, and by May, they still hadn't followed up on the information Madoff provided that would have clearly shown he was running a fraud. Back to the book. Sometime in May, the SEC investigative team drafted letters to send to Barclays Bank and the Bank of New York, asking them to confirm Madoff's trading activity. Responses to those letters would have put him at risk because they would have revealed that there simply wasn't any trading activity going on. For some reason, however, Megan Chung and her colleague Simona Sue decided to delay sending the letters until Madoff himself was interviewed later that month. Ultimately, the letters were never sent. Later, no one could recall why. Then, in mid-May, the SEC team asked a staff member at FINRA to check on Madoff's options trading on a particular date. The FINRA staffer reported that Madoff had done no options trading at all on that date. Still, the team simply chewed over the bizarre report and dismissed it, persuading themselves that Madoff either was failing to disclose his trades or was making them overseas. Despite all his obvious lies, they never suspected he was not making any trades at all. By then, after so many years of caution and bureaucratic inertia at the SEC, 
That lie apparently was simply too large to fit into the agency's limited imagination. On May 19, 2006, the SEC ended up interviewing Madoff as part of the exam. Here's what happened. Every day for the last three months, he had expected to hear that the SEC had called some of the names on the list and found out he was lying. So far, they hadn't. Indeed, they never would. But suddenly, that potentially fatal list was there in front of Madoff, on the table in the SEC's conference room. I'd like to go over this list and have you explain in a little more detail the function of each account, Simona Sue said. The account, Depository Trust Clearing Corporation. What is the function of this account? Madoff answered truthfully. That's the general clearance account for the firm. That handles all the settlements of transactions for the firm. Did the clearinghouse set up separate accounts for the different institutional customers? Yes, Madoff said. Well, there was one big account, but different codes for whether the securities belong to the brokerage firm or to an institutional customer. You know what those codes are? No, Madoff said. But DTC would know? Yes, he said. Well, that was probably the final fatal step, the moment when his time ran out. I thought it was the end. Monday morning, they'd call the DTC and this will be over, he recalled later, and it never happened. That astonished him, he said, because if you're looking at a Ponzi scheme, it's the first thing you do. If the investigative team had checked Madoff's clearinghouse account that day or on the following Monday, they would have found that it held less than $24 million in blue-chip stocks at a time when it should have held either billions of dollars worth of stock or an equal amount in treasury bonds based on the account statements they had seen. But the investigators misunderstood how the clearinghouse worked and wrongly assumed that it would be hugely laborious to sift out the hedge fund transactions from the firm's normal high-volume trading business, so they didn't follow up on the DTCC account. When its team officially closed this flawed investigation on January 3, 2008, after a long period of inactivity, it would conclude that, despite all the lies they had discovered, there was no evidence of fraud. I think you can at least make a weak argument for why nobody else detected Madoff's fraud, but the SEC dropped the ball again and again. They had numerous opportunities to blow the lid off the whole thing, but in experience bureaucracy, ego, and incompetence prevented them from protecting the people they were tasked with protecting. And that meant the whole thing didn't come crashing down until Madoff's sons turned him in at the end of 2008. The next part of the book basically details the last year of Madoff's scheme, which continued to unravel due to increasing doubts about his legitimacy during the market collapse of 2008. How is Madoff still making money when everyone else is losing money was the question ringing in everyone's ears. This led to increased scrutiny, increased withdrawals, and Madoff reaching a point where he knew the withdrawals were very shortly going to exceed the cash he had in the bank. So he confessed to his sons and his sons turned him in. The remainder of the book talks about the legal proceedings and the bankruptcy process. I found this part really interesting, but it's super detailed and not really relevant for our discussion here. I'm just going to flip through the rest of the book and read you some short passages that I think will help us solidify some of the lessons we've talked about. One of Madoff's victims was Ellie Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor and famous author. He gave a talk on the scandal that had a few powerful lines. It's almost simplistic, he said. The imagination of the criminal exceeds that of the innocent. His meaning was clear. A criminal can imagine committing his own crimes, while his victims cannot imagine anyone committing such crimes. I have a little note to myself here that says, this is a good example of why it's important to think about and be exposed to the dark parts of the world. If you aren't aware of the types of bad things that happen, you won't be looking out for them happening to you. And that's a huge reason why we're having this conversation today and why we're going to continue studying frauds throughout this season. All right, this next passage talks about the people who should have known. Without a doubt, there were signs that should have made even unsophisticated investors pause before investing with Madoff. The firm's website did not mention his advisory services, his hedge fund, or his customer accounts. As the years went by, his account statements remained primitive, 
printed and mailed, while customers at Fidelity or Merrill Lynch could check their accounts online. Some were warned by Madoff not to talk about being his investors. For most of his career, he was not registered with the SEC as an investment advisor, Surely something a small pension plan trustee or IRA investor would have noticed. True, he paid relatively modest returns, roughly equal to an S&P 500 index mutual fund, but his results were far less volatile and hence much safer than an index fund. How was that possible? If he was a lot safer than an index fund, shouldn't his returns have been a lot lower? As Madoff's victims sought redress, the question of who should have known would split the world cleanly into two groups. One group looked at Madoff's stature in the industry, his long track record with his investors, his obvious wealth, and his phony but immensely convincing paper trail, voluminous account statements, simulated DTCC screens, bogus trading terminals for conducting fake trades, and asked, how could his victims have ever figured it out? The other group looked at the red flags, the anomalies, the impossible scale, the implausible consistency, the secrecy, the whispered warnings on Wall Street, and asked, how could his victims not have known? The purpose of this podcast is to put us into the latter group. We want to be in the group who spots the red flags, who asks the questions and keeps asking questions, who heeds credible warnings, and then who walks away instead of falling victim to our greed. Now, we shouldn't be arrogant. This sounds simple, but it's obviously not easy. But studying these frauds, as we've done in this episode and will do in future episodes, should make us better equipped to protect ourselves. In the epilogue, the author had a single sentence that stood out to me. She wrote, like so much that Madoff says, it is a plausible, detailed, credible-sounding explanation that starts to fray after it is handled a few times. This, I think, is a really key point. Handling information multiple times with multiple people is one of the best ways to feel out the inconsistencies. If you're uncertain about something, discuss it with a friend or a colleague. Let them ask you questions. Make sure you can explain everything. Search for the holes. Handling the information helps you find the gaps. These lines from the last few pages hang in my head as good reminders. Without training, we all wildly overestimate our capacity to detect risks and recognize criminals in the marketplace. This is the hard lesson of the Madoff case that none of us wants to accept. We all invest on faith. We all believe that trust is all we need. His customers ignored the fact that his results were increasingly implausible and his operations were suspiciously secret. Time and again, people caught Madoff in an obvious lie and gave him the benefit of the doubt. They didn't do this because he seemed so much different from them, but because he seemed so much like them. Only better, smarter, more experienced, more confident, more in control. Because he was fundamentally human and seemed to live in the same world they did, they could believe that somehow it would all work out and that they could ignore unpleasant realities without incurring unpleasant consequences. That is the most enduring lesson of the Madoff scandal. In a world full of lies, the most dangerous ones are those we tell ourselves. And that is where I'll leave you. If you enjoyed this podcast and you want to learn more, I highly recommend reading the book. And if you buy it using the link in the show notes, you'll be supporting the podcast. You can also support the podcast by sharing it with your friends, sharing it on social media, sharing it in your newsletters, or anywhere else. And with that, we're one book closer to avoiding fraud as investors and entrepreneurs.